Hello, and welcome to this PrimeMed podcast, Opioids and Opioid Use Disorder, a case-based approach to manage pain during the opioid epidemic. I'm Dr. Danielle Hebert, and I'm an adult nurse practitioner in primary care, as well as an assistant professor and coordinator of the adult gerontology primary care nurse practitioner track in the Tan Chin Fen Graduate School of Nursing at the University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School. While this episode is relevant to all primary care clinicians, it's part of a curriculum I've developed with PrimeMed and designed specifically to help nurse practitioners earn the pharmacology credits they need to maintain their licensure. Check out the other courses within the curriculum at www.primed.com forward slash Hebert. Thank you for joining me as we dive into what we, as primary care clinicians, can do to improve the care and safety of our patients. We'll begin with using case studies to address common patient scenarios regarding managing controlled substances in primary care. Now let's discuss the first case. Ms. J is a 49-year-old female who has been a patient with us for the past five years. She is on chronic opioid management for a broken femur that did not heal appropriately following surgery three years ago. She has a signed controlled substance treatment agreement with you that you review annually. She rates her pain as a 5 out of 10 before treatment and a 3 out of 10 after treatment, taking her oxycodone immediate release 5 milligram tablets two to three times per day as needed. Her current opioid misuse measure, or COM, score is 4, and remember, score of 9 or higher is indicative of aberrant behavior. Your state's prescription drug monitoring program website shows that she's been filling her prescription monthly, and you are the only prescriber. She has no personal history or family history of substance abuse or mental illness, which places her at low risk. So you've been checking her urine drug tests twice per year, with the last one six months ago and testing positive for oxycodone and its metabolite, noroxycodone. Her recent test was positive for oxycodone, but negative for its metabolite. So what does this mean? Let's quickly review interpretation of urine drug testing, as it can be affected by several factors such as pharmacogenetic variability or interactions between drugs that could lead to false positives or false negatives. The sensitivity of urine drug testing is the ability of the test to reliably detect the drug or the metabolite at the identified cutoff concentration, which is indicative of a true positive. The specificity of urine drug testing is the ability of the test to reliably exclude substances other than the medication we're looking for, or its ability to not detect the medication of interest when the amount is below the cutoff concentration, which is indicative of a true negative. It is estimated that about 7 to 10% of the Caucasian population do not have an active cytochrome P450-2D6 
or abbreviated as CYP2D6, which is an oxidizing enzyme. This means they are not able to metabolize codeine to morphine, and this can result in them having a false negative result. We also need to consider medications such as paroxetine and bupropion, as these are P450 2D6 inhibitors, which can block the metabolism of codeine and result in a negative test result as well. Many facilities do use point-of-care immunoassay testing because it offers quick and convenient results in the office. But these tests can commonly result in a false positive or negative result, requiring the sample to be sent out for more specific testing. Now, there are some known medications that can cause false positives and negatives because of the metabolites that they produce. An example of this is the over-the-counter VIX nasal inhaler, which contains I-methamphetamine, which can result in a positive methamphetamine result on a urine drug test. It is also important to note that some patients may be rapid metabolizers for certain medications. And what this means is they will have a false negative on their urine drug test despite taking the medication appropriately. Barring what we just discussed regarding urine drug testing, having a test that's positive for the opioid but not for the metabolite may indicate that the patient has not ingested and metabolized the medication but rather has added a small amount of the medication directly to the urine sample. This is something referred to as shaving and can be indicative of aberrant drug behavior. So what should we do next? While I haven't had this particular situation for a patient, I have had similar. Let's say you request her to come in to discuss the findings and ask her to bring her prescription bottle and tablets so you can complete a pill count, which is clearly identified in your contract as an option that could be randomly requested. When she comes in, she doesn't have her bottle, and she states she was cleaning and misplaced it, but that she'll find it for her next appointment. You notice her behavior to be different than in the past, and she is seemingly more anxious. So what would we do next in this situation? Given all of the potential factors that can affect urine drug testing, it's important that we don't jump to conclusions and that we have a complete and thorough history to have a discussion with our patient regarding the findings. In this particular scenario, Ms. J's inability to produce the prescription bottle for a pill count could be indicative of aberrant drug behavior as well as a break in her controlled substance treatment agreement. It's important that you're upfront and honest about your concern regarding the findings and her inability to produce her prescription. In the situations that I have had like this, I share my concern with the patient about the situation and their safety while referring back to the requirements of the controlled substance treatment agreement.
and asking if there's anything that they need to be sharing with me. In some instances, this conversation can go smoothly, and in others, it can be difficult. As the provider, it's important we guide the conversation and we keep it focused on the safety of the patient so that they do not feel judged. Let's go back to Ms. J. After discussing the lab results and their potential indications, Ms. J does become emotional and she shares with us that she has had some financial issues and that a neighbor told her how much she could earn from selling the oxycodone. So she weaned herself off of it a couple of months ago and has been using acetaminophen while selling the oxycodone. So what would be the next step that we're going to take as the provider here? In this scenario, I would inform Ms. J that I am no longer prescribing the oxycodone because she has violated our agreement. It's important that we maintain empathy for her as she is experiencing something that drove her to make this decision. But we also have to educate her on the risks and illegal factors associated with this action. After discussion, she does acknowledge the concern and apologizes for the inappropriateness of the behavior. Now, these behaviors are not reason to dismiss her from our practice. It's important that she know we are still going to be her primary care provider. You decide that you're going to refer her to the social worker to see if there's any services that could be available to help her financially. In terms of the drug diversion behavior, I would recommend you follow your organization's policy as well as state laws in terms of any reporting that needs to be done regarding the drug diversion that has occurred. Next, we're going to meet Mrs. L. She's a 30-year-old patient who has a history of a college basketball injuries that have led to chronic shoulder pain. She has been taking oxycodone immediate release 10 milligrams twice per day for the past year with good relief, rating it as a 3 out of 10. She has an appointment today as she'd like to start a family, but doesn't know her options or what risks may exist if she were to continue taking the medication. It's important that we consider the impact of continuing or discontinuing the opioid. It's possible the discontinuation of the opioid is going to lead to a worsening of Mrs. L's pain, which could have a negative impact on her pregnancy with maternal stressors such as depression and decreased or poor sleep. On the flip side, we need to consider the risk versus benefit for the baby if we were to continue the opioid treatment. Unfortunately, the study data regarding opioid safety during pregnancy is limited and there is many that have weaknesses in the outcomes. Studies have shown that the U.S. rate of prescription opioid usage by pregnant women on Medicaid was around 20%, while the rate was about 13% for those who are on commercial insurance. According to the CDC, opioid-related diagnoses at time of delivery increased 131% from 2010 to 2017. What we do know is the physiological changes that can occur with pregnancy 
that can affect the pharmacokinetics of opioids, such as the increased blood volume, body habitus, GFR rate, and a decrease in GI motility. It's also important to consider the drug's permeability to cross the placenta. The concern lies with opioids as they have a high lipid lipophilicity, so they can rapidly cross the blood-brain barrier. Because of these concerns, opioids are not considered first-line therapy for mild to moderate pain during pregnancy. Exposures to opioids can increase the risks of bleeding during the third trimester, the mortality of mom, and also preterm birth. The newborn is at risk for small gestational age, a low weight at birth, and also sudden infant death. Two important terms I would like you to know are neonatal abstinence syndrome, abbreviated as NAS, and neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome, also abbreviated as NOWS. NOWS is considered to be the same as NAS, but NAWS is due to only opioid use. They can both present with irritability, seizures, fever, or weight loss. This can also place the newborn at an increased risk for an extended hospital stay, possibly occurring in the neonatal unit. The occurrence of NAWS in the United States was a rate of approximately 6 per 1,000 hospital births in 2020, or about one baby being diagnosed with it every 24 minutes. Studies also show that NAWS seems to have a higher risk with oxycodone, hydromorphone, morphine, and methadone compared to godeine, which was a lower risk. Now, considering all of these facts, the first thing I would do is ask Mrs. L what she has used in the past for her shoulder pain and how effective the treatments were. Depending on our decision, we may want to try these modalities again. Has she tried non-pharmacological treatments such as physical therapy or cortisone injections? I'd also want to ask her how does the pain impact her life when it's present? What does it prevent her from doing? I want to know what her goals are for her pain management, and how does that interplay with her plans for her family? What are her concerns around all of this? Knowing the potential risks, I'd evaluate for any risk of suicide or presence of any mental health disorders that could possibly complicate her opioid taper. It is recommended that opioids be tapered by a rate of 5% to 20% to allow time for the body to adapt to the decreasing dose. The United States Department of Veterans Affairs from 2016 provides a very good outline to provide some guidance in the reduction of opioids. According to the Veterans Affairs Guide, the time frame can vary with a slower pace of reduction by 2% to 10% every two to four weeks, or as quick as 10 to 20% each day. We can also reference the CDC, 
who in 2022 advised that there is a lack of evidence to support any specific tapering approach, and instead to use a taper that is slow enough to minimize signs and symptoms of opioid withdrawal. Tapers can be extended, taking several months up to years to be concluded, depending upon the dose of the opioid and how our patient is responding. The CDC does recommend to begin with a decrease of 10% of the original dose each week until 30% of the original dose is reached, then continue decreasing weekly by an additional 10% of the remaining dose. If the agreed upon goals for you and your patient is to achieve opioid cessation, then the taper can be stopped once the patient is able to tolerate less than once daily dosing. It is important to note that extra caution must be maintained if you're initiating a taper for someone who is pregnant, as withdrawal has been associated with premature labor and spontaneous abortion. Ultimately, the rate and pace will be individualized and determined by patient risk and needs. I would recommend that we wean our patient off the oxycodone using a reduction rate of 10% each week, as long as she tolerates the taper. At the same time, we will implement a non-opioid therapy regimen. I would ask if she's willing to try PT again or possibly a referral to orthopedics for a cortisone injection. We can also recommend for her to begin a regimen of acetaminophen, which can be taken during pregnancy. I would have her come back to see me again in four weeks to see how she's doing, and I would continue the taper with a gradual dose decrease every four weeks until she is no longer taking the medication. If, however, she were to become pregnant while we were tapering her dose, I would refer her to a specialist who could closely monitor her while continuing the opioid taper, given the multiple possible complications that can occur. With our next case, we're going to meet Mr. C, a 39-year-old male patient that recently joined your panel as his previous PCP whom he had had since adolescence, has retired. You have a meet-the-provider appointment scheduled to establish care and discuss his chronic opioid agreement. As part of the chart review, you see that he has been prescribed hydrocodone acetaminophen, 5-325 milligrams, two tablets twice a day for the past five years due to multiple areas of chronic pain, secondary to injuries he sustained during his time in junior hockey. Mr. C receives 112 tablets every 28 days. He has never missed his biannual appointments. He does not request early refills, and he completes urine drug testing every six months, which are consistently positive for marijuana and norhydrocodone, a metabolite for the hydrocodone. The PMDP confirms that Mr. C has been receiving prescriptions only from his former PCP. So what do you think with this case? Does Mr. C's consistent use of marijuana indicate that he needs to be tapered off his chronic opioids? Or do you think he can continue on this regimen 
the use of marijuana, whether it be recreational or medical, still remains in the gray zone for many providers. How does a patient's use of marijuana impact our prescribing of opioids? As you likely know, many states have legalized recreational and medical marijuana. As of 2023, 38 states and the District of Columbia have legalized recreational marijuana for adult use, while 23 states with the District of Columbia have legalized recreational marijuana. Marijuana continues to be included as a Schedule I drug, according to the DEA, and continues to be recognized as an illegal substance by federal law. So what does this mean to us as providers? As this is a fluid situation that is still evolving, we lack a specific set of guidelines or recommendations to help us in determining whether we should or should not continue our patients on chronic opioids if they partake in marijuana use. According to the CDC, from 2020, research evaluating long-term impact of legalization of marijuana has not been found to contribute to a reduction in opioid overdose deaths. The Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration cites in 2023 that the usage of marijuana is increasing across all adult ages, sexes, and within the pregnant community, but the perception of the harms from marijuana is declining. According to SAMHSA, one out of 10 marijuana users will develop addiction, with the risk increasing to one in six if the usage begins before the age of 18. Marijuana is also changing in potency, being three times the concentration from that what it was 25 years ago. Marijuana has also been linked to many long-term effects on the body, inclusive of loss of IQ points, association with mental health disorders such as depression and anxiety, impaired driving, and impaired fetal growth and development. A literature review from 2021 explored provider habits with continuing opioid prescribing if their patients were using medical cannabis and found that many decisions to continue, alter, or discontinue the opioids were based on state laws and policies of the practice. A Delphi study from 2020 found an inconsistency between provider opinion as to whether patients on chronic opioids should be tapered if they had consistent use of marijuana or suspected cannabis use disorder, abbreviated as CUD. However, participants did agree that there should be consistent review of the Controlled Substance Treatment Agreement, an increase in frequency for urine drug testing, and a referral made to an addiction specialist if cannabis use disorder is suspected. Now let's go back to Mr. C. At his appointment, he tells you that he has had several fractures and ligament injuries that have not improved with physical therapy, and that he has also developed various areas of arthritis due to the injuries and surgical repairs. He currently works in construction and is able to support his family of four. He denies any work absences or performance issues and reports he is up for a form and promotion, which he should hear about in the next few months, which would mean less labor-intensive work. 
He reports using marijuana three to four times per week to help with sleep on the days that his pain seems worse, citing a level of seven to eight out of 10 on those days. On other days, the level is usually four out of 10 with the opioid. He states he did try CBD for sleep, but did not find that it helped as much as the marijuana. So what do you do as his new provider in this situation? For me, the first thing I would want to consider is my state laws. Is marijuana considered to be illegal in my state of practice? If not, I need to recognize that federally it is still illegal and that I do carry a federal license to prescribe. The third thing I need to consider is my organization's policy regarding chronic opioid prescribing with marijuana use and what does their chronic opioid agreement state. Does it have specifics to this situation? So I can say that I practice in a state where marijuana is legal. I have worked at organizations that held a firm stance that marijuana is illegal per federal law and that anyone that tested positive for it would need to have a discussion with the provider as to the usage of marijuana and the patient's willingness to not use it. If the patient opted to continue, then we would taper the opioid to cessation. If the patient was willing to cease use of their marijuana, they would be able to continue with their opioid, but they would undergo more frequent urine drug testing for monitoring. Now, the other organization I worked for allows for marijuana use while on the chronic opioid agreement with the understanding there would be more frequent monitoring with urine drug testing for other possible substances in addition to monitoring for aberrant drug behavior. So I haven't really given you an answer as to what to do with Mr. C, have I? What I'd say is there is no one answer fits all scenarios option. If I was caring for Mr. C in a state that legalized marijuana for an organization that did not view marijuana use as a reason to not prescribe opioids, then I would continue his treatment and monitoring. In reflecting on his situation, he has the possibility of being promoted to a new role that may decrease the need for opioids, providing the opportunity to discuss trialing a taper in the dose to see if he can still have good control with a smaller amount given the decrease in the laborious work. So as we near the end of the podcast, I want to review a couple of key takeaways with you. One, interpretation of urine drug tests. This must be done with careful consideration of factors that can cause false positives or negatives including a good history and exam to identify those patients who are at risk for opioid use disorder or aberrant drug behavior. Two is that pregnancy can complicate opioid tapers with events such as spontaneous abortion or premature labor. It is best that we refer these patients to pain specialists who can closely monitor the patient. And our last takeaway is please get to know your state laws regarding marijuana, as well as your organization's policies for opioid use in the presence of marijuana. So that brings us to the end of our session. Thank you so much for joining me for this case study review on management of controlled substances and substance use disorders.